We've come now to the, the fourth vision, fourth of seven visions in the book of Revelation. And remember, each, each vision in Revelation also contains within it a set of seven. Uh, so far, just to remember where we've come, we saw the first vision of the seven churches where Christ is seen as the Lord of his church, building his church. The second vision, we see Jesus as the Lord and judge of creation in the seven seals as he brings God's judgments of hope to this world. The third vision was like the second where we saw the seven trumpets and in those two visions, the seals and the trumpets, we saw those two aspects of God's judgments, judgments of hope where he's actually uh, bringing uh, his people out of the world and forming them into his people and judgments of mercy where his judgments are that trumpet call going out, the gospel going out, calling people to repentance and to faith. Now in this uh, seventh this third vision of the seven trumpets, we were also introduced to the reality of the devil and his work. We saw him described as the king of the army of the bottomless pit or the abyss, uh, one who brings suffering to people on the earth. But we also saw that he can only operate under the sovereign rule of Jesus because Jesus holds the key to the bottomless pit. He's the living one who died and he's alive and he has the keys of death and Hades. So the devil can only do what the Lord allows him to in order to ultimately accomplish his sovereign purposes. This fourth vision, which should appear hopefully, there we are, it will give us a bit more insight into the strategies that the devil employs in his inevitably unsuccessful attempt to remove Christ from his throne. And it will help us to make sure we've got things in the right perspective so that we won't be fearful or discouraged. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Screwtape Letters, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe but to feel an excessively unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devil, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So, we need to have that right perspective. We need to know what the scriptures tell us about the devil so that, as we're told, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. But we also, we only need to know what the scriptures tell us about him and not go into speculation or focus more on the devil than on Jesus who has defeated him. If in our thinking about the devil, 
we find ourselves fearful or unhelpfully intrigued, we need to remember, take your eyes off him and put them back on the crucified, risen, ascended Jesus. And that's hopefully what this vision will enable us to do. Now I've called this vision the seven figures in the battle with evil. And while we'll see there are more than seven characters in this unfolding vision who will appear through the coming weeks, there are seven times in which one of two particular words appear in the Greek and they both mean to see. They're translated in English by appear or saw or looked. So that's, that's why um, we've broken it up into those seven, uh, seven sections. So this morning we'll look at the first two of these figures and we'll look at them together because uh, they're intertwined both in the vision but also in history. So the first figure is this woman. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now there have been some differing views through history as to what this woman, this sign represents. Our Roman Catholic friends say that she represents the Virgin Mary and so it's not uncommon to see uh, pictures or statues of Mary using imagery from this passage. And we can see why they, they may have their reasons for this interpretation. Mary literally gave birth to Jesus, the male child who rules the nations. Uh, we could see in the dragon's attempt to devour the child, King Herod's attempt to kill the child Jesus, which led to Mary, Joseph and Jesus fleeing to the wilderness of Egypt when they went to escape Herod. But there are some problems with seeing this woman as Mary, which have led to the way that uh, the Roman Catholic Church wrongly views Mary. Firstly, this woman has royal status. She's a queen. She's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, a sign of dominion and she has a crown, a crown of 12 stars. And her appearance in this way in heaven has led to uh, the Catholic Church calling her Mary Queen of Heaven, making her almost to appear equal with Jesus. Secondly, she's described as a mother with offspring. You see that in verse 17. And that's led to the, uh, the view that Mary is not only the mother of Jesus but also the mother of all Christians, uh, which is one of the reasons behind why uh, Catholics are encouraged to pray to her and address her as, as mother. Now, because of these wrong ideas that have been around for centuries, we Protestant evangelical Christians, uh, we tend to react in the extreme and we avoid or play down 
the, the place of Mary in the Gospel story. Uh, so we shouldn't ignore Mary. We should acknowledge that Mary, yes, was a uniquely blessed person in the history of the world. She is the only person to have borne the incarnate Son of God. She sang in her song, From now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. She was in a way like a new Eve. Those two women, Eve and Mary, they stand like bookends in the story of redemption. The first, Eve, she heard the promise that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. Mary saw the fulfilment of that promise because it was literally her offspring, her child, who has done that. But in this vision, this woman is neither Mary nor Eve. The sun, moon and twelve stars point us to who she represents, the people of Israel. Remember Joseph? He had his dreams as a young man and in one of them the sun, the moon and eleven stars bowed down to him. The stars represented his brothers and the sun and the moon represented his father Jacob and his mother Rachel. So this, that's what that imagery is pointing to. This woman represents the nation of Israel. The people of Israel are portrayed as a woman uh, in two ways in the Old Testament. Firstly, uh, the Lord uh, repeatedly refers to Israel as his bride and he as their husband. And he does this particularly to highlight Israel's idolatry Uh, They become like an unfaithful wife, even a prostitute, when they turn away from him and worship false gods and idols. But also highlights his mercy in that he remains the faithful husband who never goes back on his wedding vows and he goes out to redeem and to reconcile his wayward bride to himself. The second way that Uh, Israel are portrayed as a woman is when the Lord addresses them using the name of their capital city, Jerusalem or sometimes Zion, the mountain on which Jerusalem stood. He calls them the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem. In the ancient world, cities were thought of as being feminine The inhabitants of a city were the children of the city. Cities were walled back then and they would also be described as if they were like a mother bird whose wings, like the walls, are are gathering the children and keeping them safe and secure. And that's why Jesus used this imagery Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Now this verse isn't saying that Jesus or God is a mother. It's saying that what the 
the leaders of Jerusalem had failed to do, Jesus would come and do. The physical city of Jerusalem will be destroyed but the people's refuge is to be in the Lord, not in a physical structure like the city. But the city represents uh, the Lord uh, gathering and caring for his children. So what John sees here in this glorious, radiant queen is a depiction of Israel, this nation whose family, whose beginnings were with this family of 12 sons whom the Lord blessed. He turned into a great multitude, a great nation in order to display his glory amongst the nations. Now Israel's history here is depicted as the woman's pregnancy because the whole purpose of choosing and forming her was so that promise given to Eve, given to Abraham, that an offspring would come and crush the head of the serpent and undo the destructive power of sin and death that would uh, deal with the curse, that would bring about blessing to every tribe and tongue and nation and people would come to pass through this nation. The Old Testament story then is like the conception the in utero development and the labour pains of a pregnancy. All of the suffering and turmoil that Israel went through were these labour pains, the, the wrestling with God until the time, the moment appointed by the Father when the time had come God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. A family in our church just recently has just experienced that. They They knew that an obstetrician can predict with remarkable accuracy the due date of a child. And so little Chloe was born on the day that the obstetrician had said, Tuesday last week. They know that once conceived, a child will follow a predetermined path of development and growth and all circumstances being well, they will be born on the day that is predicted. Well, even more guaranteed is the Father's plan to bring the conditions of Israel, his people, to exactly the right place and the right time for the Son to step into their history and ours. The day, the time, the circumstances of his arrival were perfectly according to the Father's plan because the last two years of Israel's history up to that point had also gone according to his plan. Now verse 3, we're introduced to the second figure. The red dragon, whom we're told 
in verse 9 is representing, representing the devil and Satan. Now I think it's important to see that he's the second figure. He appears after the woman. The father's plan to install his son as the king of the universe comes first. That was determined in eternity. The devil and what he does is only a response to God. It's an attempt to undermine what has already been set in place. Remember, the devil isn't, as some people think, or we can easily slip into thinking, that he's this great dark power that's somehow equal and opposite to God, kind of the the yin and yang, the light and dark, a good God and then a bad God who are in this eternal tussle over the universe. Our God is the supreme creator of all. So the devil is merely a creature. He has nowhere the power, nowhere the authority of God. And as we'll see, especially in next week's passage, he can't create anything new. All he can do is mimic, all he can do is parody what God has already done and is doing. So this dragon turns up, but he's purporting to be that alternate God, a rival to the true God and his authority over the world. Horns and diadems are images of authority and power. And both the number seven and the number ten speak of completeness, divine completeness. So he's claiming, as he did when he tempted Jesus, he's claiming to have absolute authority over the world. Something he desires but he will never have. But he wants to deceive humanity into thinking he has great power, even greater than God himself. That was the deception in Eden. He led the woman and the man to submit to his authority instead of God's by giving them another word to obey. And so humanity, we've we've adopted him as our surrogate father, as our surrogate king, but it's just a deception. He presents himself as a king, but in reality his claimed authority is just a scam. This dragon is flaunting his horns and his crowns and his heads, but he can't hide his colour, red. Red is associated through the Bible with sin, with death, and with violence, because it's the colour of blood. So this dragon is stained from head to toe with blood, because all he can bring about is bloodshed and death. So don't be fooled. If you're tempted to be captivated by his horns and his crowns, just remember his colour. The other thing we're told about this dragon is he sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to earth. Now, what's happening here? Well, on one level, we can see it simply as, a, as another image of the devil trying to claim God's authority in his creation. 
Remember, we've already seen in his God's judgments in the seven trumpets that that judgment came and impacted one third of every part of creation. So the devil here is trying to mimic God's authority and he pretends to have power over creation just like God does. But unlike God, God's judgments in creation are limited. Why? Because he's patient, because he's merciful, because he chooses not to destroy everything in one go. The devil's actions are limited because he's limited. He's limited by God himself. Remember when he sought to bring suffering to Job? On both occasions when he came before the Lord and said, what about Job? I bet if I cause him to suffer, he'll curse you to your face. He was limited in what he could do. He could bring suffering, but he couldn't bring destruction. He couldn't bring death. Those things are in God's hands alone. Now, some people also believe that this is an explanation for demons or the devil's angels because we've already seen in Revelation that stars have represented angels. And so the theory goes that the devil, a fallen angel himself, managed to lead astray a third of God's angels. Now, I think that theory, and it is, it is only a theory, is, I don't, even if it's the case, it's not, I don't think it's what's being portrayed here specifically. Because we saw in verse 1 what the stars represent in this vision the 12 tribes of Israel. So if the stars here swept from the sky represent anything, we should see them as Israelites. Those individuals who through the history of Israel were members of the nation of Israel but who were led astray into idolatry and rebellion. If that's the case, it shows us that from the beginning of the establishment of Israel, the devil has been trying to undermine the father's plan to send his son, how? By attacking and undermining his people. If he can destroy Israel, if he can bring Israel into disgrace and bring her to nothing, then he'll also bring God into disgrace because the nations will look and they say, well, what kind of God is Yahweh? if he cannot keep and save his people. So, verses 1 to 4 are a very brief history of Israel, a summary of the Old Testament from Genesis through to Malachi. And as the Old Testament draws to a close, we're brought, so to speak, right into the maternity ward, into the delivery room, as the unborn child's head crowns and its birth is only moments away. And then we come to the New Testament, which begins the moment after an extended labour that the child is born. Now the question now is, The devil was unable to destroy the pregnancy, but will he be able to destroy the newborn child? Will he be able to thwart God's 
plan that's been unfolding through the ages just at the moment when it's about to be completed? Well, no. What's happened? The dragon's suddenly he's left alone, rendered powerless. The child is snatched away, caught away by God himself and the woman is enabled to flee into the wilderness. At the most crucial moment in the plan, the point at which the dragon could have undone everything, he doesn't even get a chance to act. Who's in control here? The devil or the father? Now here I think we can see that allusion to Herod's attempt to kill Jesus because Herod was empowered and incited by the devil. But there's there's a beautiful irony to that whole story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus fleeing in fear to Egypt and only returning once Herod is dead. The devil was behind Herod's actions but the father was behind the whole thing because we're told that when Jesus returned from Egypt to Israel it was to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. What does that mean? That means it was already the father's plan for Jesus to go into exile and then return from Egypt so that even as a child he would be seen as the one who was going to accomplish the true exodus by becoming the true Israelite, by becoming the true and better Moses who would redeem his people from slavery to sin and death. This is like a cosmic gotcha moment in which God turns the tables and shows that the devil was playing right into his hands. And this gotcha moment at Jesus' time of, time of Jesus' birth is only going to be surpassed by the greatest gotcha moment in all history when the devil thought he'd finally got him when Jesus was taken to the cross. On all human accounts, defeated by the devil. But that was actually the final nail, so to speak, in the devil's coffin. He, he was disarmed, he was cast out once and for all. And that's what we see then in verses 10 and 11. We could say that the birth of Jesus was the declaration of war against the dragon and then his death and resurrection was the conclusive victory. But he was doomed from the very beginning. In verse 10, the devil is called the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. Now what does it mean for the devil to accuse us before God? We certainly know what it's like for him to accuse us to ourselves, don't we? To remind us in our heart and our conscience of the guilt of sin, of its shame. To tell us that the fact we keep committing those particular sins must mean we're not a real real Christian or that God's patience is soon going to run out. He likes to bring up our past. 
He likes to remind us of our secret sins, of our foolish decisions. He likes to tell us that we really are no different now to what we were before we became a Christian. He likes to make us fearful of the future and to worry that when we stand before God we won't pass the test. He picks up on our doubts, times when we struggle to work out how God fits into the complexity and the suffering of life or when we're tempted to question whether God is there at all and he rubs it all in. He wants us to feel unworthy of God because of our doubts and he pushes us towards legalism so that we think that our Favour with God depends on our performance and of course we know that we'll never live up to the standard that God demands. Well these are ways that the devil or at least his angels attack us and seek to discourage us so that we will become passive and impotent and no longer desire to live for Christ and for his glory. But the reason he employs that strategy with us is because he's lost his ability to accuse us before God. When we were still apart from Christ, he could. He could bring those charges against us to God because as Ephesians 1 says, Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. At that time the devil was able to bring an accusation about us before God. And it would have been true because we stood guilty before him. But what has the Father done about that guilt? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The only weapon that the devil has against us, accusation, has been snatched from his hands by Jesus who bore the full guilt of our sin into the grave and whom the Father has raised up and raised us up with him into the victory of Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father. So when that hymn we sang earlier says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what are we to do? We don't fight back on our own terms. We don't try to prove our innocence or our worthiness. 
We don't think we can get him off our back by trying harder to do good or to beat off sin. No, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Not only is that a source of comfort to us, but that's how we are to resist the devil so that he will flee from us. When Jesus, when Satan accuses us, tell him your words are empty, your attack is just bluff because you've been thrown down, Jesus is on the throne. This is the victory that we are living then in Christ. We're told that they conquered him. How? Not by power, not by strength, but by the blood of their lamb, blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They're not strictly two different things because what is it that we testify to? What is our testimony? It is to the lamb. It's not about what we've done. It's not about anything that we've accomplished. Our testimony is what we've seen and heard of Jesus, crucified for our sins, raised for our justification. So when the devil starts talking to you about you and your sin and the grave, tell him to shut up. Declare to him Christ and his victory over death and the devil. Then thank the Father that in his sovereign wisdom he's allowed you to go through that time of testing so that you can be reminded once again of the depths of sin and despair that his marvellous grace in Jesus Christ has rescued you from. And I can guarantee, because God guarantees, that if you resist the devil with the blood of the Lamb, he will flee. If the devil had no power to destroy the Father's plan through the history of Israel, if the devil was impotent when it came to trying to destroy Jesus, then does he not have power? No, he doesn't. He has no power to destroy anyone whose faith is in Jesus. So, verses 1 to 4 are the Old Testament. Verses 5 to 16 in this chapter speak of the New Testament. What then of Verse 17. Well, that's where we stand today. You could call it the church age. We are the rest of her offspring because we keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Through union with Christ, we are children of God, the true children of Israel. In the Old Testament age, the devil's focus was on Israel because they were the focus of God's activity. They were the expression of his kingdom on earth. Now that age has ended, Israel's purpose is complete because the child is now born, because Christ has come. God's focus and expression of his kingdom is now on those who are in Christ, the church. So that's where the devil's focus is also. 
He knows he can't destroy the Father's plan. He knows Jesus is building his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And he knows his time is short. So what's his strategy? His strategy is to attack and undermine the church and its witness to the world. That's what the next two figures in this vision are all about. The two beasts, one from the sea, one from the earth. They're given to us so that we can discern the devil's strategy for attacking and undermining the church and our witness in the world. Now, chapter 13 is probably one of the most controversial and for some scary and confusing chapters in Revelation. But I trust that next week we will be given more of that insight so that we can understand a bit more of the devil's schemes, not so that we'll be fearful or confused, but so that we will be able to more confidently walk in that victory that Christ has given us. Let's pray.